Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will examine the performance path forward for U.S. risk assets in consideration of their run thus far in 2021, including how additional upside might be distributed across sectors. Joining me here for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, good morning to you. Hope you had a nice weekend and looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, good morning, Dan. You have the beautiful weekend here in the Northeast, so no complaints on my end. Absolutely. So, uh, Jason, I know our conversation this morning will revolve largely around the June edition of the UBS House View, the Investment Strategy Guide, and within it talks about how U.S. equities have experienced a strong run. So to put some numbers around it, roughly up 10% year-to-date and then up 22% from pre-pandemic highs. So in light of that performance run, Jason, invest are, of course, skeptical that further upside can be achieved from here. Yet the Chief Investment Office talks about how it believes that further upside indeed will be the case. So put simply, Jason, why is that? Yeah, it's always curious that when we hit all-time highs or near all-time highs, investors get a little bit cautious that we can't go higher. But when we look at just, you know, the U.S. markets and then supplies to global equities as well, they're really supported by overall kind of good fundamental support. You know, GDP growth in the U.S. will be you know, very strong this year, but bringing it down to earnings, which really matters most directly for stocks, we're looking at earnings growth of around 40% for the S&P of 100 in 2021, uh, another in like roughly 8% you know, next year. Uh, and the numbers you can see globally, you know, the regions are, are similar, so very strong performance. This has already been an upgrade from the 30% we expected when we kind of the year began. So it's a pretty sizable move already at this point in time. Uh, so very good earnings growth. We continue to have good policy support. Uh, so the Federal Reserve has been adamant about sort of, you know, staying on hold, uh, even as some inflation numbers tick higher, uh, you know, providing you know, interest rates, you know, keeping them low. We think about the valuations uh, of equities. Yeah, they're on the high side if you look at the absolute terms. It's sort of an isolation. But when you compare them to bond yields, the valuations don't look you know, particularly stretched, at least relative to long-term averages. You're kind of right around sort of long-term you know, equity risk premium. Uh, there are segments of the market, you know, for example, maybe it's value or small cap stocks, part of international markets, like including emerging markets, that don't look like they're fully priced for this recovery and growth. And a simple way to do that is think about the revisions to earnings expectations that have taken place year to date and seeing how the prices have performed. Uh, and earnings revisions far exceed the price performance. So actually on a relative basis, some of these segments of the market have actually gotten cheaper as we've moved into the year. So when you kind of add this all up, you know, with ongoing potential, you know, policy support, we still see further upside. No, it's not dramatically so. So our year-end price target is 4,400 for the S&P 500. So you're looking at you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of upper single-digit type of returns. Still good, you know, but you know, not as good as it you know, had been year to date. Jason, in consideration of this anticipated further upside, the question becomes, well, how will this upside be distributed across sectors? So if we consider that reflation trade, which we have previously discussed here on the podcast, Jason, might more cyclical discounted sectors stand to fare better relative to the more growthier areas that are trading currently at a premium? I think we, that's what we expect. And I think, you know, the headline return for the market overall, you know, is positive. It's good. But I think really the action is sort of beneath the surface. And we can already see it year to date on just different sectors within U.S. equities. The range of dispersion is really significant when we look at, you know, you know energy sector upwards of 30 percent. You know, other areas such as financials, you know, materials, you know, high teens, low 20s, pepper percent. 
whereas uh, you know tech sector is up around five percent. So huge dispersion. So being able to kind of you know, make sure you're allocated, you know, within the areas that are going to have the most upside is kind of critical to trying to generate even better performance. So we see that continuing to be the case for value stocks, uh, certain relative growth stocks, and they've been you know, consistent outperformer for most of this year and even over the past month and week as the markets have been a little bit more choppy. Uh, we've seen a bit of a bounce back you know, in small cap stocks recently. Uh, emerging markets as well over the past week, and you know even areas like you know European equities have have held up well over the past month. Uh, and a lot of this, I think, reflects the fact that we've seen bigger kind of earnings reversions in some of these areas, such as value stocks, kind of more cyclical areas, some of the international markets that, to varying degrees, haven't been fully priced in. You know, the point I just made a minute ago. Uh, and then we look at just sort of relative valuations, you know, such as say, for example, small caps to large cap in within U.S. equities. Uh, it's hard to close the gap a little bit earlier this year, but over the past two months, we've seen kind of large outperform small. As a result, the valuation for small to large, you know, as at a discount, you know, it's the most extreme discount, you know, also for the past 15 years. Um, and that's, you know, sort of if you look at kind of value versus growth, not just over the past year, but, you know, growth has outperformed by so much that the valuation discount for value to growth is still pretty extreme. So when we think about just the, the relative risk reward, the macro environment, the earnings upside, it still favors some of these areas, uh, like value stocks, you know, financials, energy. Uh, you know, we still like small mid-cap equities. We like, um, you know, emerging markets. You know, even now, this past month, we upgraded your Japan equities as something that's really tied into the global economic cycle. So if the global economy recovers, you know, that's a region that should benefit. So that's kind of the reason why we still think there's there's actually more attractive upside in some of these specific areas of the market that's been benefited from this inflation trade and should continue for at least another six months. Now, Jason, running with these growthier areas for a moment, namely technology, which has had a rough run in recent weeks, how should investors manage their exposure, Jason, in that context? And should further volatility in that area be anticipated? Well, let's first put in context what's actually happened. Uh, if we take the 10 most traded tech names in the U.S., you know, like think of the FANG stocks plus, you know, another five or six. Um, collectively, they're down, you know, 14% since their highs in February. Uh, if you look in pockets of the market, for example, there's a, a basket so you can look at unprofitable tech companies. Some of those are down, you know, 30 plus percent since, you know, their February highs. So pretty significant, you know, down markets in a time when the markets overall, the equity markets overall are up. And we can point to a number of factors that are sort of weighing on the tech space. Uh, some of it is, you know, we've seen a higher a move higher in rates. Uh, that kind of big move higher really began in February, and that was one of the catalysts to get this pullback initially. Now we're seeing concerns about inflation, which in and of itself isn't negative for tech per se, but it does mean potentially higher rates, and higher rates, again, would be another kind of potential headwind for the tech sector doing well, just because there's such a interest rate sensitive asset class now because the earnings are so far to the future that higher rates also equal are negative for the valuations of these earnings far in the future. Um, and of course, you know, valuations, you know, are relatively more stretched in, in those areas of these tech spaces versus, you know, some of the value cyclical sectors we just discussed. Uh, other factors globally have included, you know, just kind of regulatory concerns in China. So some of their tech stocks have also, you know, suffered, you know, quite a bit, you know, over the past, well, not only three months, but the past six months. But you're right that we do see, you know, still good long-term opportunities, uh, you know, from a secular growth perspective. But in the near term, this the next, you know, three, six months, your volatility is likely to continue. Uh, you know, valuations are, are elevated, but not too high given sort of the earnings outlook that we see, um, which, you know, they're moving to the tech space, still cranking up very strong earnings. But really the factor is that in the near term, there's a lack of obvious catalyst for tech to really outperform the market. Uh, plus, they have the prepared 
the pressure from you know, yields potentially rising you know, through year end, which is what we expect. There is this sort of regulatory risk overhang, um, you know, not only in the U.S. Uh, you know, in terms of some of the tech companies, given how dominant their positions are, but also applies to you know China as well. So you add this all up, it's hard to find a compelling argument why there's sort of a near-term opportunity why they shall perform. This isn't necessarily a negative view on tech. It just means that after an area where a lot of investors have loaded up on tech, on growth stocks, that we think an allocation right now that's more close to sort of their benchmark exposure would be more appropriate. Uh, so for context, you know, in the S&P 100, you know, the mega cap tech companies, you know, that have market caps in excess of 200 billion, they comprise 27% of the S&P 100 index. So if you think of your portfolio and tech stocks being larger than that allocation, then then you're clearly skewed towards you know the tech space. So we would look to either you know trim that back, or if you have cash put to work, put it to work in these other areas like value stocks, small cap, maybe some international equities. Uh, and then even then within tech, where we see more opportunities is within maybe the small and mid cap space. Um, you know they've underperformed more, um, but they also probably have a stronger or you know a longer term outlook just in terms of recovery. Uh, and within those areas, you diversify into things that would benefit from what we classify as the next big thing, such as 5G, fintech, health tech, and green tech. Um, those are the areas where I think they're, they're the most attractive opportunities. So this is certainly not a negative view on tech. It is more kind of a realistic view that is probably not going to outperform the market. And if you want to get upside, there's pockets within the market that, that are probably more leveraged to uh, you know, the, the recovery overall and to their longer term. Appreciate that clarity, Jason, on the growthier areas, namely tech. So I do want to circle back on a point you brought up a couple of moments ago with respect to market turbulence. You mentioned that we should anticipate over the next three to six months, periods of volatility to material lines present themselves. And it's understandable, Jason, that these periods result in investors often taking a wait and see approach with their portfolios. Though, Jason, what are the risks associated with with staying on the sidelines for too long. Well, let's just think about you know the you know the volatility environment to begin with. You know, a month ago, the a little more the fixed volatility index, you know, kind of known as Wall Street's fear index, you know, fell down to a low of about 17, and this is its low in the pan- post-pandemic period. Uh, you now recently, it's kind of ticked higher; it's above 20. So this has been almost like a 20% move. And some of this just reflects the fact that the macro environment hasn't become quite as benign as investors were expecting. Because of the rise in inflation, at least exceeding expectations, you know, the jobs market data was below expectations. So a little bit more uncertainty in the macro front in terms of how we're going to get through the next couple of months. Could you know, growth not be quite as good as expected? Could inflation be a little bit worse? And is it even going to be transitory? And as the data comes in, that's going to lead to potential volatility, especially in terms of how the Fed might respond to it. Now, if you see that happening and you see markets at an all-time high, it certainly gives you some incentive uh, or temptation to to wait for volatility kind of to pull back for the macro news to improve, you know, to try and buy the dip. You know, the problem with that strategy, as you alluded to, is that, you know, time in the market is very difficult. Uh, if you sit out on, you know, you know, on the sidelines waiting for that pullback, uh, you know, historically you can show pretty clearly that not being invested ultimately proves to be the more costly strategy than maybe buying at what appears to be an all-time high, ultimately because markets continue to grind higher. So it goes back to the analogy or, or the, you know, the kind of advice that, you know, time in the market is more important than trying to time the market. Uh, and even as the volatility measures have ticked higher, historically, you know, buying when, you know, the VIX index is above 20 has generated better returns over the next six months than when it's been below 20. Uh, it's a little bit of, you know, you want to be greedy when everyone is fearful. And while people aren't fearful, as concern has risen, this is a time perhaps to think more that this is an opportunity to buy or start to add exposure rather than to wait for everything to be all in the clear because while that happens, 
by the time that happens, you know, the markets have already moved. Um, so I think it's it's good to sort of use this as an opportunity to think about your portfolio overall, you know, where to rebalance um, and not to be sort of too defensive uh, because more likely than not, that's going to cost you at this point. Jason, in the way of a closing point, in terms of events or catalysts that might trigger or result in turbulent periods in the market on a going forward basis, in the way of a roundup, Jason, what are you most closely monitoring at this time with respect to risks? Well, the first and most important and most prominent among kind of your clients and investors is inflation and whether it proves to be you know, sort of transitory or could it be so sort of sustained and become structural so that that after a, a surge in the second quarter, does it not moderate that significantly through year-end? Now, we still think it's more likely than not to moderate. Uh, so, you know, 12 months from now, inflation will definitely have tamed down. Uh, that's what the Fed believes. But I think that's, you know, kind of one of the uncertainties is, is will that happen or not? Uh, we're not going to know for a few months because just year-over-year effects alone mean that inflation is going to stay elevated, may even take even higher for May when we get the numbers in June. So it won't be until July or August that we start to see at least some moderation. Uh, another risk to, to keep in mind is geopolitical risks. Uh, you know, we've seen that recently with, you know, the situation in Israel, which renewed fighting between you know, Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, we saw it over the weekend with this, uh, you know, the airplane that was, uh, you know, diverted to Belarus, um, potentially at the behest of the, the Russians. Uh, we've seen this with ongoing tensions between the U.S. and China, particularly now over, over Taiwan. So there's a lot of geopolitical risks that I think investors, you know, were paying less attention to during the pandemic because, uh, that was the focus, but now as the pandemic recedes, you know, you know, in the U.S. and globally, that some of these other issues are sort of coming more to the forefront. Um, I think for investors, though, most of these things, and we know the term historical evidence, tend to be more you know, headline risk. They dominate the news flow, but their fundamental economic impact tends to be relatively modest. And so the way, the simple way to kind of try to assess it is, will any of these things materially alter our growth outlook, the inflation outlook, and have a policy response? And ultimately, the answer is almost you know, usually no. In which case, uh, it, it creates very short-term volatility, but not enough for you to really kind of fundamentally alter what you're doing in your portfolio. Uh, and the final thing I just mentioned is, is the COVID kind of risks and challenges. While the pandemic is certainly abated in the U.S., you know, there's always a possibility of, of new variants materializing um, a third wave or perhaps a fourth wave materializing, you know, in the fall as we get into the winter season again. So while things look very positive now and trending in the right direction, there are risks that could be renewed at some point, um, you know, later this year. So that's something you can either kind of bear a close watch on. Jason, appreciate you joining us today on the podcast and for walking us through the considerations and factors that support further room to run, along with guidance on how to position portfolios accordingly and the risks to be mindful of as well. So very productive, helpful conversation to begin the week, and we'll look forward to catching up again with you soon, Jason. Though, thank you again. And appreciate it. You're welcome and have a great week. Likewise. Thank you, Jason. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. Uh, These resources can all be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including the UBS House View publication suite for the month of June, the investment strategy.
strategy guide. Title is Stuck in Your Story, posed as a question. So for clients of UBS, you can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about today's topic, the June UBS House View Publication Suite, or receive a copy directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.